The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. We're glad that you're here on this New Year's Eve day. If you're like our family, it's kind of a week that you've lost time. And you find yourself marking time not by a clock or a calendar, but how many trips you make back and forth from the refrigerator and like whatever show you're watching as a family. We had to remind multiple members of our family to bathe this week at different times and spent sometimes very extended periods in our pajamas. Um, And it's good to have that kind of Sabbath reset every year. Would you pray with me? Today, oh God, we commit ourselves once again as your people to look back across the last year to give thanks for your faithfulness and to lean into the faithfulness that you will provide for us each step that we take over the next 12 months. We offer that prayer with thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. It was about 12 and a half, or actually 13 and a half years ago that our family relocated from Nashville, Tennessee down to Pell City, Alabama, gateway to Lake Logan Martin. And I became the associate pastor at Pell City First Methodist Church. And I was told when I got there by the lead pastor that typically one of the pastors joined Kiwanis Club and the other one would join Civitan. And so, because he was a member of Kiwanis, it was expected that I would join Civitan. So I reached out to the president. They were glad to welcome me in. And on one of my first Tuesdays as we moved into that new city, I walked forward at the Civitan Luncheon in the esteemed Pell City Civic Center here. And on that linoleum tile, we had our lunch on fold-out tables. And then the president, after going through their ceremonial items, they called me forward. And they introduced me, and everybody clapped and made me feel good. The president shook my hand, said that I was ready to become a member of the Civitan group there, and that I had committed that I would participate in the lunches that I would participate in fundraisers and other events for the common welfare of the city to do good for those who needed it, and of course pay my dues. And then they shook my hand, gave me a lapel pin, and they took my picture and it made it into the local newspaper, one of the proudest moments of my life. (laughs) And the expectation was pretty clear. If I would simply follow those guidelines and expectations as a member of Civitan, then I would be considered a member in good standing. And I think for many Christians, they think about the sacrament of holy baptism in very similar ways. And I think that's a mistake. A definition of holy baptism, here's one for us. A Christian sacrament, meaning a holy thing, sacrament, instituted and commanded by Jesus Christ, where water represents two things, God's washing away of our sins, and clothing us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is our initiation into the body of Christ, the church, God's family now on earth, the new Israel, as we sometimes say. This can be received as a new believer who, by their own decision, chooses to be baptized as a new believer, or as a recipient, as a young child, before an age of accountability, so that later they can affirm the decision, that the, the faith that they were baptized into curious this morning. When we talk about baptism, when you think about those of you that are baptized, when that happened, how many was five or more years ago? How about more than 10 years ago? 20? 30? Is Pastor John in here? 250 years ago. 30 years? 
So, if you're like me, I was baptized at seven years old, and I just turned 42. 35 years ago. So 35 years ago, water represented in Valley, Alabama, at First Church of the Nazarene, by the hand of my father, the pastor. Water symbolized the washing of my sins away and me being clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. Three and a half decades? So what significance or power might that moment three and a half decades ago have in my life today if it's only something that I remember? Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul wants to correct my thinking and give me an entirely new framework to think about the baptism of Jesus at work in my life as I begin 2024. In order to understand the book of Romans, there's a little bit of history that you have to know about what was happening in and around the writing of that letter. In the year 49, the Roman emperor Claudius issued an edict that said that all of the Jews in Rome had to leave. He drove them out. And among these Jews in Rome in the year 49 were many Jewish believers in Jesus. You see, Christianity was a new religion, but in a sense it was early on practiced primarily by Jewish believers in Jesus. Well, five years later, the new emperor Nero, before he became tyrannical and terrible as you learn about in middle school world history, he actually invited the Jews to come back home into the city of Rome. Five years had passed between when all the Jewish believers in Jesus had left and when they were able to come back home. And what they found was they walked back into their church, figuratively speaking, and found new Gentile believers sitting in their pew. And in fact, they saw a whole multitude of Gentile believers. And now those original faithful Jewish believers in Jesus were not the majority. They were the minority. And they didn't like it. And if you could imagine a line down the middle of a room like this and some people only sat on this side and drank coffee out in the gathering space with this group of people and these people only associated here, and one of them felt like they were the VIP faithful of Jesus and those other ones, they would just tolerate them. That is not God's vision for the body of Christ on earth. And it inspires the Apostle Paul in the city of Corinth in about the year 55 or 56. So a year to two years after Nero lets those Jewish believers back in, he hears about this and it troubles him greatly. And Corinth is not that far away from Rome as you can see in this map of the early Mediterranean world. In the area of Greece you can see Corinth with a little green star and then just hundreds of miles over into Italy about halfway north up the peninsula, you can see the city of Rome. Paul writes them a letter because he's concerned about these divisions. And I've always loved Rembrandt's picture of the Apostle Paul because you can see the worry, the concern that he has for these fellow Christians as he is beginning to pen the letter by ink and quill. So Paul writes to them, and he has a message to level the playing field. In case anybody in the congregation feels that they are morally superior because of ethnic background, because of religious practice, or prior religious heritage, Paul has a unique strategy. He just tells everybody what terrible sinners they are. Listen to this in verses 9 through 18, and then we'll add on verse 23. 
What shall we conclude then? Do we, and by the way, it says we, he's talking about Jews because he was a Jew. Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. They all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And would you read verse 23 with me? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, that's one way to explain that everybody's equal in the eyes of faith through Jesus Christ. But I don't think it would win any popularity contest for any modern day preacher to begin their address to their congregation that way. So if that is the way that Paul says that the playing field in the Christian faith is level, what is the great hope then for us? Is that the only word that we are all guilty of these various expressions of rebellion against God and acts of injustice or unkindness toward our neighbor? Of course, that's not the final word. And if you were to read very carefully the chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, you would see that Paul brilliantly, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins to write out a new vision for the future of God's people in which Jew and Gentile live together. And he does it by revisiting the story of Israel and now saying Jesus Christ has been the true and faithful Israel. In other words, where the covenant people of God in the Old Testament failed, Jesus Christ was faithful. And so he makes arguments like this. Israel found freedom from slavery in Egypt by passing through the waters of the Red Sea. That's how God liberated them from that terrible tyranny. Well, he says Jesus provides freedom from the slavery of sin and brokenness by passing through the waters of baptism. That's the beauty of it. Jesus was faithful where Israel was not, and Jesus now has not only saved Israel, but has opened up God's family to anyone in the world who wants to become a part of it through baptism. But Paul recognizes something universal about human nature. He knows that just like some of the children of Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, got out into the wilderness being led by God to the future promised land and said, you know what? I think I want to go back. Life was easier there than living out here by faith, even if you say we're going somewhere better. And Paul knows that can be a temptation for those of us who have passed through the waters of baptism as well. So in chapter 6, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I think Paul understands that the power of God's grace and forgiveness can be so beautiful and overwhelming to us that when misapplied or misinterpreted, we may be tempted to think, God has forgiven me once. I bet God will forgive me again. And they may be very tempted to return to the same behavior that God forgave them for in the first place. And 
This is a perennial problem, universal problem in the human condition. Don't feel guilty when you make mistakes. Just rely on God's grace. I myself am guilty of saying, you know, I think I'll just ask for forgiveness rather than permission. permission. I think I can get away with it if I say mea culpa afterwards and I just try to play on the good favor of other people or even on the favor of God. And so when I was studying this passage, I was reading some of the work of Tom Wright, a well-known New Testament scholar. He said, think for a minute about that famous story Jesus tells in Luke 15 about the father who had two sons. And most of you know that parable. There was a, a wealthy father who had two sons, and the younger son comes to his father and says, hey, dad, um, the only value that you have to me is the inheritance I'm going to eventually get when you kick the bucket. Could I just get that now? And everybody who heard Jesus tell that story in the first century would have thought that that son should have been disowned in that moment. They could not have imagined a more disrespectful, disregarding attitude. But the father gives his son his inheritance. And what does he do? He travels far away, and it says that he wastes it in dissolute living. He uses it to throw lavish parties, and pretty soon those deep pocketbooks come up empty. And he finds himself on hard times and hires himself out to a Gentile pig farmer and is eating the same things that the pigs are eating. It says that when he came to his senses, he says, you know what? The people that work for my dad on his ranch live better lives than what I'm living. I'm going to go home and just confess that what I've done has been unacceptable and just ask, can I just work here? and get paid to have a better life than what I've got now. So he sets out to home. And when he's turning the corner to come down the driveway, the father gets out of his rocking chair and runs to his son. And the son falls at his feet and says, Father, I do not deserve your grace. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. Just let me work here, please. And his father says, Rise. Bring my robe and bring a ring and place it on my son. Go and kill the fatted calf. Call the DJ. We're going to have a party and everybody's invited because my son, who was dead, is now alive. And he restores his son to life. Now, the older brother's not real happy about it when he comes in from the field and sees his good-for-nothing, wasteful younger brother who's back in the house and in his father's good graces. And the father has to work through this restoration of relationship with both of them. Now, says Tom Wright, fast forward a year. And the younger son has gotten comfortable living at home again. It's nice to be back in the house. He remembers the hard times living with them and the hunger and the shame and the regret. But man, we did have some good times before then, didn't we? Gosh, I don't think I, man, I, I didn't think I'd have an experience like that. I, I'll never forget how much fun that was, the ecstasy of it in the moment. I had everything that I wanted, and people were flocking to me. And I, I wonder if my dad forgave me once, if he might be willing to do it a second time. And we hear that possible outcome of the story, and we immediately say, what a jerk. And some of you might even feel yourself getting angry because you know someone who has thought that way. All of us would reject that thinking and say, you need to remember the second chance that you were given and make the very most of it with a grateful heart, 
Don't just throw that away and disregard it. Yet, if I'm honest with you, I am guilty of that very same thinking in my spiritual life all the time. I'll think about when someone committed a wrong against me and how angry I was, justifiably so at that person, but I prayed and God allowed me to lay down that grudge somewhere. And if I stop and think about that person, I can find my way with my eyes blindfolded all the way back to that grudge and its handles fit perfectly in my hands and I can pick it right back up and it almost feels reassuring and comforting to feel like I've got that moral power over someone else who did me wrong. And I do that in opposition to the voice of the Holy Spirit which tells me, don't do that. Why are you trying to go back to Egypt when I brought you through those waters and I've promised you a better future? And that's just one of a thousand examples of how I might be tempted to say, you know what? I probably could get away with this in moderation and just rely on the mercy and grace of God to forgive me later. What I would say to the younger son in that story and what I would say to Nathan is God forgive us when we seek the benefits of God's mercy without remembering again what it cost God to extend that mercy. Couldn't that younger brother remember the look of heartbreak in his father's eyes when he demanded his inheritance? Doesn't he remember that look? Doesn't he remember the strength of his father's squeeze around his back and neck when he finally made his way home smelling like a pig farm? Can't he remember the the glisten of the hot tears running down his face when at the party the father stood up to tell everyone why the party was happening at all because his son who was dead is now alive. And Paul won't have any of the way of thinking that says that doesn't really matter. I'll just rely on grace and mercy again. So in verses 2 and 3 he says, By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? In other words, I think a way of putting what Paul is teaching the church in Rome here is that Jesus Christ did not suffer and die to be raised to new life, to institute a new era of sin management where we live in moderation and just make sure we don't commit the big felonies, make sure we don't get too far down the road of the misdemeanors, and just try to do whatever we want to do, relying on the mercy and grace of God again. Jesus Christ came to make dead people alive. And so in verse 4 he says, We therefore were buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I can't think of a more powerful description of what it means to become dead to our own old sinful behaviors than what he says. We were buried with Him. That word buried literally means to be entombed together. It means that when Jesus went down into the tomb, it's like we went down with Him. And for Paul, he says that when we move down into that tomb and then back up, it's like moving from one form of humanity into another. And we should never, ever think of ourselves as living in the old mold again. It's dead. 
It's dark in there. It smells bad in there. Why would you ever want to return? So the question I would just encourage you to reflect on quietly, silently, rhetorically, is what part of your 2023 life needs to be washed away? Left in the tomb? Behind you in Egypt? So that you might move forward to something God has for you. I don't know what that is. I wouldn't presume to know. Is it a spirit of anger or envy or bitterness or hate or judgmentalism or despair or pride or lust or hypocrisy? Our greed, blaming, lying. Friends, to me, the power of baptism is not just that it is a memory that I have from three and a half decades ago, as important and special as that memory is to me when I was seven years old. If I'm going to think about 2024, and crucifying and leaving in the tomb all the old behaviors so that I can move into a new life that God has for me, God must have done something and promised something in baptism that is more than just forgiving me for everything I've done up to that point in history. Because I'm sorry to admit it to you, but over the past three and a half decades, I've made mistakes. And having been home with my family for the majority of this week over the past three and a half days, they would tell you that there's part of me in 2023 that should not be taken into 2024 either. So what's the hope for you and me? I believe it's in a very special way that Paul introduces that our baptism is in that of Jesus' baptism. Look, if you will, at the four verses, verses 1 through 4, and notice the term that Paul gives to describe Jesus. If we can have those verses up on the screen, please. In verse 3 he says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into who? Christ Jesus. And then later on he says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. That, that's interesting. I thought his name was Jesus. And that Christ was just the title. But Paul doesn't say Jesus Christ. He says Christ Jesus. Why does he put them in that order? Because the term Christos had centuries of tradition attached to it. It is the Greek form of the Hebrew term that would be Messiah. And it literally means God's anointed one. So I began to look in the Old Testament about where does anointing show up in the Old Testament if Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel in the New Testament? Where does anointing show up? And what I found is that these are just a few examples. The term Christ comes from the Old Testament ritual of using oil to anoint leaders in Israel. Some of those leaders were prophets. Some of them were priests. And some of them were kings. And Jesus comes and fulfills all three of these titles throughout his ministry. And this oil was used on prophets, priests, and kings to set them apart. King David, when he was selected by the prophet Samuel, was anointed with oil. And Jesus, says Paul, 
is the Christ, the anointed one, the one who received the oil that set him apart. And it made me think in the Gospel of John, Jesus actually gets literally anointed. In John chapter 12, six days before Jesus is arrested and crucified, there is a woman who brings in a jar of perfume worth thousands of dollars in today's terms. And she takes it and she pours it out on the head of Jesus. Now, if you've ever been in a party and someone broke a jar of perfume, it stays in that room for a week. It would have been overwhelming with Jesus and His disciples to see Jesus literally showered, baptized with this expensive perfume. And then when His body is taken down from the cross just six days later, Nicodemus shows up with several hundred pounds of spices and anoints the body of Jesus. What am I saying that for? The Scripture doesn't say this explicitly, but I don't think it's a stretch to believe that when Jesus went into the tomb and was resurrected, He smelled like that anointing He had received twice before His resurrection. Baptism isn't just what God takes away in the past. It's something God gives to carry us into the future. Water and oil don't really mix, do they? You get oil on your hands or on your clothing, it's very difficult to get off. Baptism at the end of 2023 is not just about God forgiving us for the bad things in the past, but God's Christ sharing His anointing for the 12 months that lie before us in the future. I believe what Paul is saying in Romans 3 through 6 and here in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6 is that Jesus Christ is the anointed one, has taken our sin into the grave and then shared his new life with us and it sticks with us. So we don't have to be enslaved anymore. Our lives don't have to be marked by the bad mistakes we've made or the things that we've said and done. There is a new future for you and me in 2024. God made the promise through baptism that it was possible. When I was growing up in our small church, there was a lady that came to faith when I was about nine years old in our congregation. And her name was Una May. That was her first and middle name. I don't have any friends or acquaintances named Una May uh, today, but I was raised in South Georgia um, in the 90s. And so we had a lot of people with names like that. And she didn't say, hi, I'm Una May. She said it real fast, like, I'm Una May. And it would take you a second to kind of catch on to it. So she becomes a Christian through the ministry of our church, and she was a person that um, was fairly tough. And it was really interesting even as a child to see this kind of change in this person who became softer, gentler, more open to other people, as she began to live new life in Christ. And I remember one Sunday as she was leaving church, she talked real loud. You know me, talked real loud. And she was greeting my father and other people after church, and I heard her stop in front of my dad and say, Preacher, I want you to know I was in the grocery store this week. I was in the Piggly Wiggly, and one of my former coworkers that I did not get along with saw me and said something smart to me. And in that moment, I said, I'm so sorry you feel that way. Maybe you'll think differently about me in the future. And I went on shopping. And she said, before I became a Christian, I would have told her what she could kiss and then where she could go. 
But right there on aisle four in the Piggly Wiggly, it was like, you've been talking about the Holy Spirit. Preacher, this actually works. That wasn't about just something God had taken away. It was about the Spirit of the Christ, the anointing of God which had been given to her, which was helping her live in a different kind of way. And I'm hopeful enough to believe that kind of possibility is for you and me today too. God, as we begin a new year, we, we want to set our eyes on you and fix our eyes on you. And we want to trust, Lord, that the power of baptism is not only what you've done in the past to erase and forgive us for what we've been guilty of, but the very power of the Messiah, your Son, the Anointed One, one anointed by oil who shares his power with us so that we don't have to return to any of those behaviors again. Help us at Church at Rossbridge to be a people who live victoriously over the power that would seek to separate us from our neighbors, that would seek to create a spirit of, of hate or resentment, to lack to value the image of God in others. And Lord, ways that we would disrespect and rebel against you. Make us whole, we pray, in the beginning of this new year, and lead us by your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The Church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama, and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ.